0: I'm Andy Kesson, and this is A Bit Lit. Founded at the beginning of the UK lockdown, A Bit Lit is about conversation, celebrating and exploring theatre, literature and creative work across all periods and of all kinds. We've talked to professional wrestlers and about ghostbusters and medieval sex positivity. We've looked at the histories of race, gender and sexuality. We've followed migrating coconuts and the history of wine and cheese. We've gone from Jane Austen and Shakespeare to EastEnders via the history of early television, young adult fiction, photography, animation and documentary making. And with over 100 films already, many other subjects as well. Join the conversations at our website, abitlit.co, or on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at abitlit. Hello Sophie, welcome to At Home with Austin for A Bit Lit and thank you for joining me. Not at all. Hi Emma, thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. So I'm very excited to chat to you today. Do you want to start off by just telling us who you are? Yeah, of course. So um, my name's Sophie Reynolds and I'm the collections
1: and interpretation manager at Jane Austen's house, which is in Chawton, which is a tiny village in the middle of Hampshire. It's in quite a rural area. We're quite off the beaten track. Um, and it's the house where Jane Austen lived for the last eight years of her life. And it's kind of, it's where everything sort of came together for her. And she finally had a sort of stable home of her own. And it's where finally the novels started to be published. And um, it's there that she kind of, she managed to rewrite, edit, and and right from scratch so some of them were already in draft form and then it's from where all six of the novels were published um so it's kind of it's it's the it's the it's the real home we like to think it's also luckily for us actually the only house where jane austen lived which still survives and is open wow. to the public um so it's also the home of our jane austen collection and Um, Jane Austen artifacts are spread all over the world. There are lots in America. Um, But in the UK, certainly Jane Austen's house is where sort of, you know, a lot of those artifacts are brought together. So we're an accredited museum. We're very small, um, but it's very, it's a very sort of rich and it's incredibly emotional experience to visit the museum. Um, We get visitors from all over the world and people, you know, very often cry when they get there oh. or when they when they reach the dining room and they see the tiny little table that Jane Austen wrote at. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it just it's an incredibly emotional thing for people. So yeah, I feel incredibly lucky to have my job. <laughs> um, I've been doing it for just over two years. And I think that's just long enough to feel like I'm not the new girl anymore. Uh, I feel like I know what I'm doing. Um, and we're a very, very small team. So even though my job title is one thing, we all end up doing loads of things and I've done everything from kind of shoveling snow, you know, getting there to open up in the morning, cleaning, you know, sort of bit of everything. But yeah, Fabulous. I'm technically I'm in charge of the house, the collection, and the interpretation, which is um basically means everything that we say about the house mm. and the objects. So it's kind of telling
0: the story. Wonderful. And I feel like you gave us a lovely little hint of sort of what that story is there and talking about uh, what it sort of meant for Austen to find a home and the fact that it really sounds as if it it inspired a lot of her creativity being in this home. Could you give us, for for those who are less familiar with kind of the shape of Austen's life, a bit of a sense of which novels had she had she written by this point? What was she working on? What was she editing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we don't we don't always know exactly. But... um to give you a very quick sort of sketch um, of what Jane Austen's life had looked like by the time she arrived in Chawton she actually grew up very close by she was born in Steventon which is about 13 miles away in Hampshire um, and she grew up there until she was 21 and she was writing all the time when she was a young girl when she was a teenager she's writing loads kind of sketches and stories. They're all, they're very silly, kind of crazy, quite wild, full of heroines who are doing dreadful things. (laughs) (laughs) Then quite suddenly, dramatically, her father announces that he's going to retire. He's a clergyman. He announces that he's going to retire and move the family to Bath. And all the brothers are okay because they, you know, have their own things. They have jobs, they have wives and houses. But um, Mrs. Austin and Jane and Cassandra, her sister, basically, they have to go with the parents. So they go to mm-hmm. Bath. Then her father dies quite suddenly. And Jane Austen is, has written quite a lot by this time. She's written a number of of things. Um, we think she's definitely written uh, Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, but under yeah. other names. And they're, they're in different forms to how we know them now, but they, they're kind of sketched out. Then there's this kind of wilderness period. So her father has died. They don't have much money. So it's quite It's quite awkward, actually. They aspire, I mean, not even aspire, they belong to a certain class. So they have to maintain a degree of kind of, you know, outward Mm. show, I think you'd say maybe, but they don't have much money. So they're kind of scrabbling around to make things work and they're moving from place to place. They live in Bath, they live in rented accommodation and they're kind of moving from flat to flat basically. And it's getting like worse, like they're moving to smaller and less good apartments Wow. Then they move to Southampton and they're living with their brother, Frank, and his wife. And he's actually in the Navy and he goes to sea, but he kind of leaves them in a house with his new wife. So it's all quite difficult. Um, she she isn't really writing that much during that period. Um, but I don't know. There are all sorts of arguments about whether she hated Bath, whether she loved Bath, whatever it was. It wasn't a great writing situation it was probably just too busy i think she was mm. you know she was having a social life um and you know anyone who anyone who's a writer will know that's not great you know you <laughs> really want to be stuck at home snowed in and sort of have nothing else to do if you're going to balls every night and going to parties and concerts and going to the theater and seeing paying visits it's just not that much time mm. and also they're moving around into different Houses and flats, so there's just not much space. Um, And then eventually in 1809, her brother Edward, who is actually the second brother, but through a kind of convoluted quirk of fate has inherited this huge sort of fortune and several great estates, Um, he comes forward about time, I think, um, and says, You know, I will give the lady, you know, the ladies in the family, he'll give his mother and his two sisters a house to live in and he can easily afford it he has many houses um, in his gift so he gives them this house in Chawton which is on his Chawton estate he has the big house just up the road the kind of the manor um he doesn't actually live there he actually is mainly based in Kent where he has yet another big house um but they move to Chawton and it's kind of known as the cottage which is quite surprising for people nowadays because you get there and it's not really a cottage it's it's a beautiful house it's very big but by their standards you know it was quite wasn't great it was wasn't it was fine but it wasn't luxurious anyway so she finally has this place which is um in the country you know she she loved bath or didn't love bath she enjoys london or whatever we think she did actually quite like city life but she's finally she's back in the country quiet and she is living with her mother Um, her sister Cassandra and their friend Martha Lloyd. So they have this slightly unconventional all-female household going on. And essentially the others all, they basically, they look after her. They take over all the household management. Cassandra in particular, is really good at sort of, you know, taking all, everything under herself and they manage, you know, all the household jobs. Jane has a couple of little jobs that she has to do, like making the breakfast and looking after the wine, which she is perfectly (laughs) happy to do. Um, And then she has the rest of her time to write, at which point she starts to pull out her manuscripts again. Um, So she she definitely has manuscripts for Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, and Northanger Abbey, which had been um, previously known as Susan. And she had actually sold to a publisher and then they hadn't published it and she bought it back. It was all quite messy and awkward. And the first thing she does when they get to Jordan is to get out the, the manuscript of Sense and Sensibility and brush it up, polish it. We don't know, oh, it's it's just so frustrating. We don't <laughs> know exactly what happened because in those days, original manuscripts weren't kept. They were, they were destroyed nice. once the book was published which is just so frustrating. Um, but we do know, you know, obviously we know what the outcome was. So Sense and Sensibility is published and then Pride and Prejudice, comes later, and then Emma. Um, and then, you know, she's sort of on a on a bit of a rut, a bit of a wave. She's riding the wave once she's in Chawton, And then it's just so heartbreaking because actually um, she then dies and it's it's quite sudden and quite dramatic. Um, she's 41 and they've been in Chawton about just over eight years. And she's been getting ill for about the last year, but has been kind of struggling on and telling everyone she's fine and having days in bed but then kind of pulling her pulling everything together and telling everyone she's writing all these letters which are just heartbreaking because she's so she's always telling everyone that she's okay and that she's much better now and it's all you know it's fine yeah and then they go to Winchester and then uh, sadly she dies Gosh. and then the story of the house is quite extraordinary actually because um Jane herself has died but Cassandra uh, Martha actually has her own brilliant story because she ends up Marrying one of the other Austin brothers, who, you know, so she has a sort of fairy tale ending at the age of 60. Oh wow. And this right. is quite unusual. Quite unusual. Quite unusual. This is a best friend the who was living yes. with them. Yeah. Cassandra and the mother stay, and Cassandra lives there until um, 1845 when she dies. And then the house, which actually belongs to the Chawton estate, which is owned by Edward Knight, the house goes back to the estate. And it's, it's quite interesting. It's sort of broken up into um, tenements, into basically into flats. And it's lived in by people who work on the estate. So it's actually split into three separate sort of dwellings. And there's an estate office in there as well. So where they sort of do the rents and things.
0: Gosh, so it's very much less a domestic space it, after having yeah, been exactly. such a
1: home. And it, it, it's at the heart of the village. So it's kind of this, it's right on the main road. Um, and it's lived in by all these different people. And I don't know, like under any circumstances, it's quite difficult to have a building which is occupied by lots of different people. You know, no one is quite taking responsibility for things and keeping it, you know, the upkeep. So it it slightly falls into a bit of disrepair and it's, it's sort of not in the best, best way. And years and years go by and different people live there and things happen, you know, the garden sort of, you know goes to rack and ruin or whatever. And then, this is just so magical, it's like a fairy tale. Um, In 1840, there's a woman who lives in Alton, which is the next town. It's just half a mile away. It's very, very close. And she would go walking in Chawton and walk past the house. And she was a huge fan of Jane Austen. And she knew that this was the house where Jane Austen had lived. And she she just thought it was heartbreaking. You know, she thought this is, This is so sad. This house is just sitting there. It's quite neglected. And nobody knows that that's where Jane Austen lived. And, you know, it's just sort of sinking into oblivion. And she thought, I want to do something to save the house. And there's this amazing story that one day um, she walked past and she saw that the tenants in that part of the house had ripped out the iron grate that used to be in the dining room because they wanted to have a gas fire because it's 1940. I mean, you know, they want the mod cons. So they had taken the grate and they'd thrown it into a pile of nettles in the garden. Um, So Dorothy Donnell sees it and she's like, not having that. (laughs) So she gets the grate and she arranges for it to go into Alton to go to the Curtis uh, Museum where it can be looked after. And then she thinks this is kind of a catalyst for her thinking, right, okay, I'm gonna do something. And she, what she does is starts up the Jane Austen Society, which today is a huge organization. And actually there are Jane Austen societies all over the world. Um, but it started with this sort of tiny little thing and there's one woman, and actually the first thing she did, she was the first member, her sister was the second member. So, you know, <laughs> it's sort of like a family, family thing, but it grows. And they set out to raise some money to rescue the house. And what they do, because it's 1940, and this is like there's no social media, they write letters to the newspapers and they put article you know, they put adverts in the papers. And um, they got quite lucky because they didn't actually raise enough money to buy the house. Which by now, by the way, I should just say, the house has now been put up for sale. So they know that it's possible to rescue it. Right. But they don't raise, they don't quite raise enough money themselves. But they do attract the attention of somebody who does have enough money, who was a, a London lawyer who lived in um, Mill Hill. I think it's quite random. He's called Mr. Uh, T. Edward Carpenter and he is the museum's fairy godfather because he decided that he would simply buy the museum, buy the house outright, set it up as a museum. And it's it's also incredibly sad because his son, we're now in um, 1944, his son had just been killed in action in Italy and he decided that what he wanted to do was to open the house up to the public, to the nation, as a museum in memory of Jane Austen but also in memory of his son. So we're also a war memorial, we have a a plaque on the front wall. So he bought the house and they set up the Jane Austen Memorial Trust which was a lot of the same people as the Jane Austen Society at that time, actually. Like a lot of the sort of local people, people who were really interested in Jane Austen and wanted to, you know, sort of be part of the story. And the museum uh, got a new roof, which was important. And we'll come back to that later, probably. Um, But that was 1948. And then in 1949, it was open to the public. However, it was still full of all its tenants. So it was actually lived in. So there was one room at that time, which was open to the public. It was the drawing room. And all the tenants thought it was really inconvenient, actually. (laughs) They didn't like having people knock on their door and like ask to see out. I can imagine, yeah. (laughs) Which is fair enough, actually. Um, So they had to raise some more money and they ended up buying, this is just extraordinary. They ended up buying other houses that they could move the tenants into. Wow. And then eventually over, it took quite a, a number of years, they sort of opened up, they freed up the rest of the house basically, um, until it, as it is today, most of it is now open to the public. Some of it is, is offices. Um, and then they also had to start building a collection because it was empty. There was really nothing there. Yeah. It was just, I guess, the walls on the floor. Exactly, exactly. Um, So the Jane Austen Society had some money and they helped buy things. And Mr. Carpenter went out and bought things. I mean, he literally went to auctions and went to Sotheby's and kept an eye out. And they would write letters to each other saying things like, oh, I've seen this in this shop. Or I've
0: seen this come up for sale. Like, do you want it? And he'd be like, yes, we want that. Wow. And so just, sorry, just to interrupt for a second. So some Mm. of these things presumably would be objects, say, owned by Jane Austen. But was this also things to do with Austen's, you know, success in the wider world, or was it objects from the right period to create a sense of Jane Austen? It was, or? It was mainly, what they were after were
1: specific Jane Austen artifacts, the so things that she had owned. Right, yeah. Today, we do have objects which are of the period. Not that many, actually, but we have we have objects to kind of, to dress the house as well. Mm-hmm. But what they were really after, and, and it's incredibly charming, we have, um, in the archive, we have a newspaper, cutting from the times I think where they had put in an advert saying Jane Austen scraps wanted and they were literally appealing to anyone who might have something that was connected with Jane Austen and they got such a great response I mean they they did actually manage to collect some really extraordinary things um so we have some items of furniture that came from Steventon Rectory um one of the best stories I think about objects coming into the collection took place in 1949 so this was at the opening sort of ceremony for the house for the museum Um, and they've got a marquee and they're doing speeches and things to sort of open the house Um, and Mr Carpenter is making his speech and he starts slightly tactlessly actually I think he starts going on about how Um, it's really bad when objects are bought up by Americans and taken back to America. And he goes, his example is like, well, you know, recently there was an auction and a lock of Jane Austen's hair was sold at auction to an American and it's gone back to America and isn't this shocking and awful. So anyway, the woman, I mean, you just couldn't write this stuff. The woman who bought the lock of hair is in the audience. (laughs) (laughs) She's called Alberta Burke. Um, and she apparently mutters under her breath, well, if they want the hair, I'll give them the damn hair. And then she stands up in the middle of his speech and she says, I am the American who bought the lock of hair. And if you want it, then I will donate it to you. I'll give it to you for the museum. And, uh, you know, there's absolute uproar in the marquee and everything is absolute carnage. And they're all absolutely beside themselves and delighted. So wow. we have a lock of hair <laughs> that belonged to Jane Austen, and it's actually it has been DNA tested. so I mean, it is Jane Austen's hair? It's just sort of absolutely extraordinary. Wow. So there are all sorts of amazing stories like that that sort of uh, you know bring together this very sort of extraordinary collection of things that she owned, things that belonged to her, things that she used, yeah. lots of books, lots of first editions, things like that.
0: Wonderful. And what's really lovely there is that there's a resonance, of course, with her literature, but it's it's sort of life imitating art, right? Because the, the lock of hair in Sense and Sensibility of Marianne's hair is so significant. And yeah, here, absolutely. And Austin's own hair having such, again, significance for posterity.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are so many of those kind of resonances and similarities, yeah, all the
0: time. Yeah. And do you find that, because um, I think you've given a, a really clear vision of how important this finding a home and finding a a place where she could actually reflect and write was important to Jane Austen's work. Do you think we find those sorts of interests cropping up in her novels as well? Is she sort of writing about getting to the point she's finally arrived at, that kind of search for a home? Yeah,
1: yeah, I think so. And actually, it's interesting, because one of... um, our kind of missions at the museum, I think, at the moment is to kind of really debunk the idea that Jane Austen's novels are about romance and about Mm. finding a husband. I mean, they're not, I mean, they are in some sense, they're definitely about that. That is the sort of the plot structure in some way. Kind of the framework, yeah. It's a framework, exactly. But really, I think there's so much more interesting than that, they're about women and how a woman who has, at that time, very few sort of legal rights, a right. woman at that point, you know, if she got married, her all of her property would belong to her husband. It was very unusual for a woman of a certain rank to work. So a woman really had to get married in order mm. to sort of have a secure future. And getting married, probably meant having children, which was pretty risky. I mean, very likely to die in childbirth, um, particularly with the num- the sort of size families that they were having. If you were gonna have 10 yes. children, it's pretty likely actually at some point you, you wouldn't make it. Um, so it's all, there are lots of things going on in Jane Austen's novels, which, people at the time I think I think the reason that we miss them today is that she was writing for an audience that just knew all of this it was just mm. in their blood it was in their bones you know they'd they just, thrown took it for up. just took it for granted and there are so many things like that in there that we completely miss um and houses are a real part of that and all of the novels have um make houses an incredibly important sort of plot device and incredibly important to the heroine. So, I mean, the most obvious example, obviously, is Sense and Sensibility, Mm. where, I mean, it's all about your house has been taken away from you. Yes, You need another one. I mean, it's it's that simple. Um, And having found another one for the sort of family unit, Marianne and Eleanor actually need to find houses of their own. And it's very difficult because you don't want to just marry anyone. And Jane Austen knew that so well from her own life story. I mean, she had a proposal and could have married someone and actually it wasn't the right person. And that potentially would have been a real, real problem for her. Certainly would have meant we didn't have any novels. and she, you know, it's this wonderful story where she accept it, accepts in the evening and then has this sleepless night. And then the next day says, I'm really sorry, actually I can't marry you, I have to go now. And, you know, comes home and, and never sort of goes goes there again. And the significance um, of that sleepless night for literary history is just yeah, astonishing. Exactly, exactly. So I think during that sleepless night, she was thinking, I could have many down park. I could live here. You know, I could have this great house, huge wealth, he's the you know he's the brother of her two best friends it it, it, he must have been pretty bad i think in order for all of those things to not make her go along with it um but the house sort of symbolizes freedom in a way Mm -hmm. you know if you get the right man and the right house you are essentially buying your independence, I mean, a form of independence. And it's kind of as much independence as a woman was really likely to get at that stage. Completely. Um, And and it's just so lucky for her, but also obviously for us, that Jane Austen achieved an even greater kind of independence through sort of being, I don't know, through not marrying people, through not getting married, not having children, refusing to go down that route which was really what everyone said you had to do yes then she ended up with her house of her own and it is interesting that none of her heroines did that but mm-hmm. i guess that was just a bit too far she was she was asking people to believe that this is what they would do and yeah. it, the question of marrying someone that was at least someone you loved was was pretty radical in its own right. So she's she is pushing the bar quite heavily. And, and I do mm. think that if we look at them and just think, oh, you know, they're romances, they're kind of, you know, chiclet. It's just, it's scraping the surface. You know, that is top line stuff. Whereas actually, There's so much
0: more going on beneath the surface. Completely, completely. And I think it's so interesting what you're saying about, yes, she never created a a vision of a woman alone or a woman with just female family members able, able to live sort of happily ever after, as perhaps we could say she did. But she does, all her novels have these heroines who are being forced, as you say, because they're dependent on sort of other people's whims and they haven't got a household of their own and they're being forced to, I'm thinking of Anne Elliot, having to go to Bath against her will. And then obviously Mansfield Park is all about being sort of farmed out to a great house without choosing to. um, And just all all these people having to... be taken along because they don't have kind of power of their own fate but then she also shows charlotte lucas sort of having to attempt to say i sit in this room a lot by myself and he does gardening to try and not be with mr collins all the time and showing how actually marriage on the one hand it gives you power and a, a domain of your own but on the other hand there are there's there are some ways your freedom can be affected through that as well you're still not yeah, in complete so control of your space and, and I was kind of just it. telling it like it is isn't she she's saying to her readership sure you probably
1: actually aren't going to get to be lizzie bennett you probably are going to be charlotte lucas so you will have to say yes and marry someone who isn't great but look there are ways to kind of make the best of the situation so whoever you are you know whichever character you identify with or you end up living their story she does she kind of makes things okay she sort of shows you how that might work. Even if you're Lydia, she kind of shows, you yes. know, like, it's not great. It's not really a role model. But if if that's what happens, you know, she's kind of does. She doesn't just write them off. She kind of continues the story enough.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So that you can see. Yeah, you're right. It's not simply this woman is fallen. Therefore, she is. She is gone, wiped off the page. You get to to see Lydia sort of using her own rebellious wit to find a way to find her own sort of happy ending or or solution yeah Um, but but
1: Lydia Lydia doesn't get to have a house I mean that is one that is one thing that she kind of is it's sort of her punishment in a way I suppose is that she's kind of moving around they go to Newcastle they're living in camp like it's kind of it's not she hasn't succeeded in the way that she should have done you know like Mm. her marriage
0: hasn't brought her what it was supposed to Yes, that's really interesting. So she she remains sort of itinerant, she remains not having that sense of a place that was so important to Austen. Um, and I find it really interesting that the, as you mentioned, in Sense and Sensibility, obviously they they lose a house, they find a house, but then the heroines have to find other houses. And yet, actually, for Austen, the time she was able to be creative was when she was in that situation with her mother and her sister, just like Marianne and Eleanor and Margaret and their mother. And the idea that that's the, the thing that has to be broken up in order to allow the romance plot to do its work is actually the place she arrived at.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's kind of bittersweet, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I think if she had left Eleanor and Marianne living in Barton Cottage with their mother for the rest of their lives. We would have all felt like that wasn't yeah. a very happy ending, but actually for it, I think it really was. I think that yeah. was a very, it was a very, you know, she came to a place where that was where she wanted to be.
0: Totally. And you might not have an answer for this, but when you were telling the story of her life and you mentioned the, the sort of the tragic death, Over the years, I've read a couple of sort of plausible or quite outlandish theories of what it was that this sort of sudden horrendous illness was. Do you personally have any sort of thoughts or theories about this?
1: Um, Yeah. So I actually I we've written we've worked with someone who um, had consulted with a doctor and they have various theories. um, And I'm going to get all the words wrong, I think. But (laughs) I think we think it was probably a kind of cancer. Um, possibly um, Hodgkin's lymphoma there Mm -hmm. are various sort of um, things that she writes in her letters that suggest that could have been that because she has some weird symptoms that she talks about she talks about her skin going black and white and all sorts of colors things like that so there are some strange things which do add up Um, but you're right it's kind of one of those things that there are so many theories and it's mm. arsenic poisoning or it's this or it's that. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't really know, but it doesn't, it's not something that I feel like I really need to know. I sort mm-hmm. of feel like, you know, in those, in that time, life was much cheaper in a way, you know, they didn't have the sort of medicine that we have today and, and everything was a bit more on the edge, you know, people died. That was, completely. that yeah. just happened much more often you know, it was quite, it just sort of came and went. And whilst Jane Austen was incredibly dear to her family and you, we know from reading letters, particularly from Cassandra, her sister, that, that her death was a huge, huge blow to her and it left a huge hole. She also writes about how, she's just very stoical and she writes about how, you know, she's gonna carry on and it's, you know, she has, just has to get on with things. And I think that actually in that time when, you know, particularly children died all the time, yes. illnesses, they didn't understand illness in the same way. So it just happens to be incredibly tragic for us because it was Jane Austen and we really right. want to have more novels than she left for us. Um, but actually, I think at the time it wasn't in a way that it wasn't uncommon. Mm. Um so, yeah, that's no, a sort of rambly answer. But no, no, no I it was a really <laughs> interesting answer
0: because I think you're right. Both. It's really interesting to know that there has been research working with specialists to kind of unpick mm. what those symptoms mean. But you're right that, yeah, in terms of how she understood it and in terms of how her family understood it, there are actually very different contexts for thinking about death. And it also gives a clearer idea of the stakes in, say, Pride and Prejudice when Jane is made to catch the cold is made to ride go go riding in the rain and the fact that her mother's willing for her to take that risk when life and death are so much more stark it's so much more likely that there could be a terrible outcome yeah yeah. absolutely
1: and in Sense and Sensibility you know Marianne sort of suddenly gets ill and you're kind of thinking like oh well why is she ill? Like, you know Yeah, she's,
0: she's... just a bit overwrought. She just Come needs on. to
1: yeah. have a lie down. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I think to an original reader that would have felt very real and like very likely that she yes. would actually die. Like that's quite yes. a real concern. Um and just while we're talking about things that the sort of original readers would have noticed, I do think another really interesting point about Austin is that so many people sort of one of the accusations that is levied against her is that she um she writes about women and domesticity and love and marriage and that she kind of misses out all of the kind of big world affairs that were going on and actually it's just not true it's just mm. that with our modern eyes we don't see them so there are actually a lot of references that she just throws in a like, very small she just makes an allusion to this or that And we skim over things because, you know, you see a word you don't quite understand or an illusion you don't understand. You just carry on. And actually, so often those are about bigger world world issues. Like the Napoleonic Wars were going on and she references them, but we don't always pick up on things like that. And I do think that there's there's a sort of a lot of work to be done to kind of redress her image in a way to kind of make it. Make people understand that yes, she's she's writing about small groups of people yeah. living in country villages. They are small domestic settings. But she is not blinkered and and blocking things out. She's just presenting things as, you know, as you as they were, as as people lived them. So there's an yeah. there's an understanding that things are going on a long way over there in other countries, but you don't necessarily spend your whole life talking about them if you're at home and the newspapers only come once a week I mean that's that's just sort of not we know
0: we're just so much more tuned into world events today completely yeah and I think that's that's a really interesting point the idea that You would have been aware of these wider world events. They would have occasionally come into your consciousness, just as they occasionally pop up into the novel, particularly when these kind of large world forces are shaping your day to day life. But at the same time, you're not hyper connected. You're not constantly getting news of what's happening elsewhere. You're waiting for letters. That's the pace at which. Exactly,
1: exactly. And she had brothers in the Navy and the Army, and they would hear from them and they would know what was going on. But it was obviously weeks beforehand because everything took such a long time to filter through.
0: Yeah, completely. Gosh, I mean, I, I could just keep chatting about Jane Austen's life and world with you all day, but I think we should probably start moving towards wrapping up. Otherwise, it could end up being accidentally a two-hour video. <laughs> um, so, one thing I did want to ask you was: Is this your dream job? And did you always know that it was your dream job? And how how did you come to have it? What was your sort of journey yeah. to this point? Um,
1: well. I actually first came to the museum, I think when I was about 17, my godmother brought me. Um, So I, and it was very different in those days, and I don't think at that time I had any idea about working in museums, so I'm not sure Mm. it would have been my dream job from then. But I am, I'm sort of really glad that I did come when I was, when I was quite young and I sort of, it was sort of been part of my consciousness for a while. Mm. I sort of slightly fell into working in museums. Um, I studied English and literature and theater, and then I studied creative writing, really? um, which was really wonderful and you know enriching, but didn't lead into a specific career. Um, yes. And I then rather fell into a job uh, at the VA and and I ended up sort of clinging on there for dear life and I ended up staying there for 10 years working in the theatre and performance department. Oh which fabulous. Was incre- yeah it was fabulous it was incredibly fun and I did all sorts of projects which involved making people angry <laughs> so sort of being naughty I think really doing lots of performance events in the museum uh I ran festivals and all sorts of things that kind of disrupted the normal running of the museum but I learned so much there and I was involved with lots of really exciting projects so my department was doing things like the David Bowie exhibition and the Pink Floyd exhibition and and things that were sort of really sort of huge and just cutting edge and sort of bringing all sorts of different creatives and it was a really exciting time um and then I saw this job advertised and I'd been at the v 10 years and I felt like maybe it was time to have a change and it is it was like going from you know the most enormous place where i mean like a thousand people at the bna right, to yeah. the tiniest so at the time jane austen's house i think had about 15 staff and i mean today it is even smaller i think we have oh, five or six full sort of you know staff um and then there are extra people who front of house and things like that but it's really tiny um and i think i have actually really i've benefited from that so much because it is completely different and it's so hands-on and you just anything that has to be done you just basically have to do it yourself um so yeah in a way I think it is my dream job and it has
0: it has allowed me to move to Hampshire which is which is wonderful so yeah wonderful and I can see how it's yeah having a sense that the, the, almost the museum is yours and that you, you have to do the things and make the things happen. That must be really exciting. And have you always been a Jane Austen fan or is that a more recent I
1: have. I have. And I'm um I'm not gonna be ashamed about this actually, but I think I can definitely date my love of Jane Austen to nineteen ninety five. Oh yeah. When um <laughs> when <laughs> we all can. Um and and actually that is another really funny and interesting point in the sort of history of the museum is that 1995 was kind of a a sort of, it was called Austin mania at the time. There was the BBC Pride and Prejudice, but there were a number of other films and adaptations that came out that year. Mm. And there was this explosion of love of Jane Austen and the museum's visitor numbers doubled that year. Wow. and, And have sort of stayed up there. So actually, even though it sort of seems like a bit of a joke, the BBC Pride and Prejudice changed <laughs> changed Austin history i think certainly yeah. changed the Jane Austen house history um because it just i think it just made people see that this was something that they could relate to and fall in love with and it kind of just yeah. brought her back and kind of we're still
0: up that world yeah. we're still feeling the effects of that which is amazing that is amazing. And, and do you have a favorite Austin novel? Is it Pride and Prejudice or is it something else? Oh,
1: it's so difficult. Um, I don't know. I regularly tell people it's all sorts of different things. <laughs> I think possibly it might be persuasion. Um, because I grew up just outside Bath and I, as a sort of teenager, I really enjoyed reading a novel set in Bath because I really sort of related to it so much I understood where they were and what it looked like and everything like that and it is just an extraordinary novel it's so beautiful it It feels that bit more mature and sort of you know, calm. It's not quite Brilliant. the geek. Yeah. Yeah. So I do love that one, but I love them all. They're all fantastic.
0: Yes, me too. Gosh. And I love how your life story is kind of all, all in relation to locations <laughs> where Austin lived. Yes. I'm, I'm following funny. her about. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wonderful. And then um just before we wrap up, I feel I should return to a point you mentioned earlier, which is you mentioned the roof being replaced in yes. the 90s, yeah. was it? And said you were going to come back to that.
1: Yeah. So, um, We are running a campaign at the moment to raise money to re-roof Jane Austen's house um, because it is now about 70 years since it was last done um, and it's really not in great shape. Um, There are a number of bits of work to be done on Jane Austen's house, but it's very difficult. It's a grade one listed building. There are bats in the attic, which makes everything harder and more expensive Um, and and we're open, I mean, we're actually not open at the moment, but in in, in normal circumstances, we're open all year round. Um, so yes, it is a say, really... Well, we're
0: diff- filming this in lockdown three. <laughs> which yeah, is we are, which is why more-
1: we're not there, which yeah. would have been much nicer. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we are fundraising. We've done, we've, we've been incredibly lucky. We've got um, uh, the Hampshire County Council are supporting us. We've been running a, a public fundraising campaign, which is doing really well we do need a bit more um but we've got enough to start work now which is brilliant so we'll be we'll be starting to get the wheels turning for that but
0: yeah we're it's it's really important that we get it done okay wonderful so if anyone wants to who's watching this video wants to donate to that we will pop the link um underneath so that you can do so so that Jane Austen's House Museum stays open for posterity and we can all go and visit it when such things are yes, allowed again. please do, <laughs> once <laughs> that's possible again, yeah. And then my final question is rather a cruel question that we put to everyone at the end of every bitlet, but we are aware that it's completely unanswerable. So it's, up, you know, just answer it in whatever way springs to mind. And that is, what is literature for you? Oh my goodness. I I think...
1: I think you know when it's literature I think um it's it's just brilliant writing it's when something is crafted Mm -hmm. um and is and you just know it's something that you feel and I completely subscribe to the idea that it's different for different people it doesn't have to be something that is marked as this is literature you know how they do in bookshops like this is literature and this is You know, genre fiction crap
0: yeah yeah when in fact Uh, Austin in her way wrote genre fiction and yeah
1: yeah exactly and and obviously I mean I want people to read that's part of the the museum's mission certainly is to get people reading and not just Jane Austen but anything anything is a good start so I want people to read anything but as someone who has occasionally you know, indulged in, in, I don't know whether chicklets or, you know, whatever, things that aren't very well written, you can read a book like that, or maybe you read a few books like that, and they, you race through them, and you can kind of just sort of gorge on them, and go through really quickly, and then you sort of feel a bit, you know, I sort of, I've really had that with, um, with books that are basically the equivalent of fast food. Like, you know, you, you sort of feel like they're they're sort of satisfying a kind of, you know, a bit of a need, but then actually they're not wholesome. I think maybe that's what I think literature is. It's something that is fulfilling and it makes you feel stronger and better and it sets you up for life. Um, and it's true. I think that there's a truth in, in really great literature certainly um and there's so much of it out there and that's what's so wonderful is it's not just the kind of classics you know there are people writing today who are absolutely fantastic and in all sorts of genres and they could be writing romances or mysteries or you know whatever like there are if you're a brilliant writer you could write any kind of thing and it, it would have that kind of depth to it that I think literature has
0: Yeah, thank you. What a lovely, inspiring, inspiring answer to end on. Well, thank you so much, Sophie. I've learned such a lot. It's been a delight to chat to you.
1: Oh, it's been such a
0: pleasure. Thank you so much, Emma. Thank you. A Bit lit, Celebrating creativity and research of all kinds.